And I'm going to invite you to open in your scriptures to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. I bet you could never guess what's in Luke 2. We are actually not going to talk about the shepherds or, uh, or Mary and Joseph and the babe in a manger, but uh, we will skip that for now and come back to that, Lord willing, on Friday and then next Sunday. And I want to draw your attention to what happened shortly after that, two really amazing interactions that Jesus' family had. So our text is Luke 2, verse 21 through verse 39. And at the end of eight days, when he, that is Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. This is a really fascinating account to me and some of the interactions that they had. I'm sure this was something that Mary never forgot all the days of her life. And in the providence of God is recorded now for us uh, by the hand of Luke. 
when Jesus was brought into into temple uh, in this early age, most people saw just one of many children that were brought in to be dedicated to the Lord. They just saw an ordinary baby. And the truth is, of course, that's what most people um, in the world see today. Just another uh, birth of someone who was ordinary, but was is revered by his followers. Uh, but two people saw something more than that. Two people saw this baby for who he really was. And by God's grace, I hope and pray, so may we this Lord's Day morning. I want to start off by sort of sketching out, outlining what's going on here in the temple. There are actually three things, three sort of separate but related things that are all taking place here. And Luke is highlighting, especially the third one, there are three ceremonies. The first is circumcision. He mentions that. This is done on the eighth day of life, probably done at home, not in the temple and coincides with the naming of the child. And Luke records that they did, in fact, name him Jesus, just like it was commanded. Jehovah saves. This was predicted, of course, by the angels that he should be the savior of his people. But Luke jumps jumps very quickly right into the second and third of these ceremonies that are in his view here. The second is Mary's purification. And he references that there in the beginning of verse 22. This is a commanded for God's people back in Leviticus chapter 12. A woman would be ceremonially unclean for seven days after having a baby boy and unable to enter the temple for an additional 33 days after that. So by the time her purification is over, Jesus is now approximately six weeks old, and they bring him into the temple. And this is the third sort of um, ceremony that's being that's in view here, and that is the dedication of the firstborn. And this too, of course, was a requirement in Old Testament law. You can look it up sometime in Numbers chapter 18 if you're interested. Luke actually quotes part of that here in verse 23. Every firstborn male was to be holy to the Lord, that is, dedicated completely to the Lord, given over to Him. This was a reflection, a a recollection of the tenth plague that God God brought on the people of um, Egypt. If you remember the plagues, and the tenth plague was the destruction, the killing of the firstborn sons. And the law, the law for Israel then, required Israelite parents to redeem their firstborn by going into the temple and paying five silver temple shekels and uh, they're offering a sacrifice that they may uh, bring this uh, child back home with them. So they brought him in to be dedicated to the Lord. They brought a sacrifice. Verse 24 describes that sacrifice, again, according to the law, as it was prescribed in particular for a poor poor person or poor, a poor family. So they brought this sacrifice that was uh, mandated in the word And it was on this occasion of this third sort of ceremony, the dedication of our Lord as a child, that we come into contact with these two amazing people. And Luke takes the time to describe each of them uh, in in some little bit of detail, which we don't always have in the Scripture. And, And so look at the descriptions of these people for a moment. There's this man by the name of Simeon who's described in verse 25. 
And Luke says that he is both righteous and devout. Righteous meaning that someone meets their obligations. And perhaps he has in mind in particular this sort of manward orientation here, perhaps Godward as well, but this is a man who is who, who does what's right. And secondly, he is devout. This is definitely, I think, has his... Um, his dedication to God in view. So he's a, he's a man who is righteous and completely dedicated to God. In fact, in verse 25, it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, this was a, a further revelation beyond just what the Scripture predicted in the Old Testament. This was a uh, revelation to this man as a prophet. And in verse 27, we see also that he came in the Spirit into the temple. So clearly here is a godly man, full of the Spirit, a special anointing, prophetic anointing dwells on him that he may have the insight to recognize the Messiah when he comes. And uh, apparently, he is a seasoned fellow, seasoned in years, uh, old man, uh, he says in verse 29, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, which doesn't necessarily mean he's old, but it sure sounds like he said, I'm ready to go now. Just take me home. I have seen your Messiah. So this is Simeon. And then the other person, of course, is Anna. Anna is described uh, clearly in verse 36 as a prophet or a prophetess. She is also uh, explicitly said to be advanced in years. She has been waiting for Messiah for a long time. She's a widow. She was a widow. She was married to her husband who passed away early on, seven years into their marriage, and now she was 84 years old, probably had dedicated her life to um, God's work, uh, to uh, the temple. Uh, she used her her widowhood, her singleness for uh, for single-minded devotion to God. And then, by the way, that's a blessing. Paul says of one of the blessings of being a single person is the ability to give more single-minded devotion to God than someone whose attention is diverted by the cares of this world. She was in the temple, it says, day and night in prayers and uh, waiting for the Messiah. So, those are the people, that's the character, here's what's going on. Now, what is, what is intended for us to take away from this text? And I think Luke um, highlights certain things. I want to start this way. Luke is not keeping a journal here. But, I mean, it's possible that he kept a journal, but the gospel that we call Luke is not just a bare day-by-day record of everything that happened in Jesus' life. Luke was selective in what he recounted what he wrote down. He was like many of the gospel, like pretty much all of the gospel writers. In fact, John, at the end of his gospel, said, if I wrote everything that could possibly be written about Jesus, it would fill up all the books, right? So Luke is selective. You can see that here. He's re- he records events about Jesus' birth, which we'll read about on Friday and Sunday. And uh, But then he comes to this when he's about six weeks old. His next scene in the next chapter is when he's 12 years old. And then finally he jumps to when he's about 30 or a little over 30 years old. So um, why did Luke record these particular events and this particular scene at the temple uh, with these two 
people? And the answer is always for us in the context and looking back at what Luke highlights and what he, the way he recounts it. And I want to uh, point you to three things this morning. Number one, that Luke is, is emphasizing that this child was in fact the Messiah, the Christ of God. This is really the substance of Simeon's speech. He's emphasizing, and Luke is recording it um, in the way that uh, Simeon talks about this baby as if he fulfills the messianic promise. In fact, it's explicit in verse 26. Luke says that it had been revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ, you know, I'm sure, is a term that is referring to the Messiah. And uh, the angels had announced already that this would be born in in the city of David, a Savior which is Christ, the Lord. So you have the angelic announcement that this baby is the Messiah, and now you have the prophetic announcement, if you will, that this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the one whom God had promised for all of the ages past, who would come and fulfill all of God's plans and purposes for His people. He would be the ultimate prophet, speaking a word, the final word from God. He would be the ultimate priest, making intercession before God. He would be the ultimate king, ruling and reigning over God's people in an everlasting kingdom of peace and joy. So, Here, in fact, was the Messiah, so says Simeon, and so Luke records it. This account is to give credence to the claims of Jesus as the Christ of God. That's why I think Luke describes these people the way he does. This is a man full of the Spirit. He he knows what he's talking about. He is a uh, godly and devout man. And what you will see is that in the course of the comments by both Simeon and Anna, that they refer to the Messiah in three different ways. Take note of our text, beginning in verse 25. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. You see that in verse 25, the consolation of Israel. So what is the consolation of Israel? If you want, you can hold your finger here, or I guess you have a phone or a tablet, so just don't worry about it. But go to Isaiah chapter 40, and you will see where this is coming from. Simeon has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Just on a side note, this guy knew the Bible. I was astounded by that as I was looking again at the allusions to the Scriptures that he makes. He, he references Isaiah 40, perhaps 42, 46, 49, all woven together in this um, messianic uh, reference. And so I was reminded that those who see Christ most clearly are generally those who are most filled with God's words. And it's just as true today. Those who see Christ most clearly are those who are filled with His words. Put God's Word in your mind, brothers and sisters. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Read it. So, 
Here he makes reference to Isaiah chapter 40. This is 700 years before this. Isaiah writes in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people. That's the same word, consolation. He's waiting for the comfort or the consolation of Israel. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is a reference, of course, to John the Baptist. And Luke will actually quote that again in the next chapter in reference to John. And then verse 4. See if these words sound familiar, especially this time of year. To make them sound more familiar, I'm going to read them from the King James Version. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Verse 9, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. And the end of the verse, say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Then down in verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them with his bosom. These are words immortalized by George Friedrich Handel. We call it the the Messiah. Right, of course. This is a clear, uh, deeply messianic text. The Messiah would be the comfort and the consolation for Israel. And this is a dramatic shift in the... um, in the orientation of God, he had been pouring out his judgment, his, his chastening, his wrath upon the people for their many, many sins. This is exactly what you and I deserve, right? Apart from grace, we deserve nothing but, but the passages of Isaiah that speak of judgment and condemnation. But then when you come to chapter 40 especially, there's a real shift as Isaiah begins to speak of the servant of Jehovah who will come and obey the Father on behalf of His people who will suffer in their place. And because of that, will bring comfort and consolation to people who deserve nothing but judgment. Can't help but think this morning, friends, that we are people who deserve nothing but God's wrath. We deserve nothing but to have our sin exposed and shamed and condemned and judged to be under His mighty hand of judgment, but in the Lord Christ in the Messiah, and in Him alone we have comfort, we have consolation, we have encouragement. Are you this morning a troubled soul, weighed down by your sin, by the brokenness of the world? We looked at it a few weeks ago when the Savior came into the world. He said, come to me and I will give you rest, comfort, for my people, the Lord came to bring consolation personally for all those who believe in Him and globally for all of His people. There is a second description of the Messiah from the lips of Simeon found in verses 28 to 30. Take a look again at the text for a moment. He took the baby 
our Lord up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So another reference to the Messiah. This is God's salvation. And again, back to Isaiah 40, in verse 5, the text says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Right? Is that what your text says? And all flesh shall see it together. Now probably Luke, um, well, Luke and, and probably Simeon as well, were, were using a translation of the Old Testament that had slightly different wording and said something like this, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Simeon, who was well-versed in the Scripture, was using the language that he had learned and had stored up in his heart And certainly other passages of the Old Testament make this point clear. The Messiah would be the comfort of Israel, the consolation of Israel, specifically by providing her salvation. And once again, it was not just for the Jews, but for all peoples who would be the Lord's people by faith in the Messiah. So, Simeon quotes from several passages, including apparently from Isaiah 49, verse 6, when he says, where God says, it is too light a thing to the Messiah that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the And that's what Isaiah 40 said. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see it together. So the angels pronounce the same thing, right? To the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. Good tidings we bring you of great joy, which shall be to, to all people. In other words, friends, the coming of the Messiah was the launch of mission in earnest. The launch of missions, world global missions in earnest. There is a breakthrough that comes with the advent of our Lord in terms of the nations that is unprecedented in all of the generations that had come before. And uh, I can't help but think that one of our Christmas gifts, as we give our gifts to each other this week and this season, that one of our gifts should be to further gospel mission because that is absolutely on the heart of our Lord with regard to the sending of His Son into the world. This would be good news for all nations. It would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Salvation to all of the peoples of the earth. In fact, in one sense, salvation to the earth itself as the creation is waiting for the redemption, for the for the redemption of our bodies and the glorification of God's sons and daughters. The Messiah came to bring salvation, deliverance. But salvation from what? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from what? From their sins. Not necessarily not primarily 
not initially from political oppression or from physical or economic hardship. This is the only thing, of course, I think that many people in Jesus' day were looking for, this kind of immediate surface-level deliverance. And, of course, many churches make these their primary emphasis today. Churches that are caught up in the liberation gospel, that see the gospel as being primarily political, the woke gospel of our own day. Or, on the other hand, the health and wealth gospel that is all about seeing the the, the material blessings of God's kingdom uh, brought into your life right now in every situation that almost makes that the essence of the gospel. People are looking today for what God can do for them immediately and on the surface, just like they were in Jesus' day. Remember he said to the crowds, you're following me just because I gave you bread yesterday and you want bread again today, but I come to give you the bread that will sustain you to eternal life. What God is really bringing salvation from is not our troubles in the world, but from our troubles within ourselves, our own sinfulness. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners. Our biggest problems are not outside of us, they're inside of us. And the Lord Jesus, in His mercy and His grace, came to deliver us from ourselves, from our sin. I want to ask, have you ever called upon the Lord to deliver you from your own corruption? Have you ever come to a point where you were sick of it? Where you were repentant of your sin and wanted to be delivered? The Savior came, the Messiah came for the salvation of God to bring that salvation to His people. And there's a third description of the Messiah here, and this comes from the lips of Anna, or, or in connection with Anna anyway, in verse 38. Again, Luke 2. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting, Luke says, for the... Here's the other description. For the redemption of Jerusalem. When Messiah comes, He will be not only the consolation of Israel, not only the salvation of God, but the redemption of Jerusalem. Most all of you know that to redeem something means to buy it, or in, in, in usually to buy something back or to buy it out of, of, of its... Um, if, if, if it's predicament, and in many cases used in terms of slavery. And in fact, this is, uh, in one sense, redemption is why Mary and the whole family were in the temple, right? They were coming to redeem the firstborn who should be dedicated to God. Um, they came to redeem him by paying the five temple shekels and offering the sacrifice and of course, that was a remembrance of the redemption from slavery when God bought his people out of slavery in Egypt all those many years before. Redemption, then, is the means by which the Messiah would bring salvation to his people and to the Gentiles. It is the means by which he would bring comfort to his people. How? How would he do it? By paying a price. 
So you see right from the beginning when the Messiah comes into the world that the price that he must pay is in the spotlight. The redemption that he will offer. What is the price paid to redeem people from their sin? Well, go back to the the plague. What was the price to set God's Son free from Egypt? It was the death of the firstborn. That was the that was finally the thing that set those people free. The death of the firstborn. And that happened all across the land except in those places where God Himself provided for His people a substitute, right? In the form of a lamb who died, whose blood was shed in their place. And so the Messiah would suffer and die so that sinners could go free. His blood would be the price that was paid that you might be delivered out of the prison house of sin, my friend. His blood was our redemption. And this is what Simeon was speaking of earlier in verse 34 when he said to Mary, uh, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. The fall of those who would be proudly resistant and the rising of those who would humbly receive Christ. And he says this Messiah will be a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce, he says, your own soul also. Just like the sword would pierce the Savior's side, so it would pierce the soul of his own mother there would be a a rejection, an opposition to the Messiah and that would ultimately lead to his being nailed to a cross. These two godly elders were, I think, well familiar with the Scripture all through the Old Testament, the predictions of the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory that must follow. Passages like Isaiah, 53, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty that we should, uh, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So what was this all about? Prophet Isaiah says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ's death, his death, would be as the substitutionary Lamb of God. He would take the place for his people. He would pay the price of redemption like the lamb who took the place of the firstborn, like all of the sacrifices of Israel that took the place of that nation. This Messiah would die a sacrificial substitutionary death for all of those who would believe on him. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned to trust in his sacrifice as the 
ultimate payment for your sin. I never tell you, you and I, friend, will never pay for our own sin. We will never make up for anything that we have done. We owe God everything, every last ounce of obedience and love and devotion and any withholding of any of that in any respect deserves the ultimate wrath of God, and judgment of God, but Christ in the grace of God was given to pay for our sins, the sins of all who believe and trust. So I think Luke's primary purpose in recording these uh, amazing accounts uh, is to remind us, to show us, to affirm to us that Jesus is in fact God's Christ, the Messiah. But I think there's at least a second and and third um, purpose here as well, uh, as indicated in what he himself highlights in the text. Uh, In fact, just take a look at it for a moment and see there are other things that are sort of repeated And and I find this a real help when working my way through a biblical text and trying to figure out what am I supposed to take away as the big point here. One of the helps is to see what is highlighted or emphasized by the writer under the inspiration of the Spirit. And emphasis is often what's repeated. So what is repeated? Well, Luke makes a point five times. That's pretty repetitious. Five times he says that everything was done, what? According to the law. Take a look, verse 22. And when they came time for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice. Here's the third one. According to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Verse 27 now, the end of the verse there. It was done for him according to the custom of the law. There's four. And then most significantly, I think, is the fifth one that actually appears to be a kind of summary statement by Luke as to why he included all this information down in verse 39. Verse 39, And when they had performed everything, looking back over all this, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Moreover, in the very next event, Luke records, he illustrates the same thing, that Jesus kept the law in every respect. I mean, from the time he was born to the time he died. And he submitted himself to his parents. Remember that story when they went to Jerusalem again and uh, he was in the temple and yet he submitted himself to his parents in accordance with the commandment. And uh, even from his youngest days, Jesus met every obligation of the law perfectly. He continued to do so, to persevere in obedience, the kind of obedience that you and I long to offer God, right? And fall so far short of. He offered it every step of the way. He said in John chapter 8, verse 29, I always, (laughs) who could say this? I always do the things that are pleasing to Him, that is my Father. And at the very end of his life, he said in John chapter 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I just think it's so amazing that even from the beginning, the Bible is intent to show us that Christ's life was in perfect and complete obedience to God according to God's law 
in every respect. Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live, and He died the death we should have died for our sin. Our salvation comes only when we look to God and we say, God, I am nothing but unrighteous. I am disobedient. But I, my hope and my, my uh, trust is in the one who was perfectly obedient. As John Bunyan said, there is my righteousness just before him. So that God cannot look at me and say, he lacks my righteousness. For my righteousness is at his own right hand. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So that I, my righteousness does not depend on my own ups and downs and obedience and disobedience and performance and, and good feelings and, and, and all of these things. But it depends upon Christ and Christ alone. He is my righteousness. And I think that is being highlighted from the very earliest days of his life. Who else could say such a thing? Brothers and sisters, everything that we have is wrapped up in the Savior. And I think there's one more thing that we could take away from this passage. And that is this, that those with eyes to see wait with longing faith for his appearing. They wait with longing faith. Luke touches on this twice, sort of bookending this text. In the beginning, in verse 25, verse 25, he says that this devout man had been, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. How long had Simeon waited for the Messiah? He apparently was a pretty old fellow, and he waited for 60, 70, 80, 90 years, all of his life. He's now facing an imminent death and he's been waiting all of these years. Moreover, his people have been waiting for generations for Messiah to come. And apparently there were many others who were waiting with faith for the Messiah. Because in the end of this text, down in verse 38, or near the end, verse 38, Anna, it says, began to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. God had many who were waiting, faithfully waiting, longing, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And she speaks to them and she tells them that Messiah has come. God's people had waited and waited with longing hearts for for hundreds and thousands of years. They'd been waiting for the Messiah, right? I mean, what is it like to wait for something that's delayed? Uh, It's a challenging thing sometimes. When your heart is set on something, when your mind is fixed on something, when you're looking forward to something so much and you don't know when it will come and it just, it doesn't come and it doesn't come and it doesn't come. Some of you perhaps have had that experience in one area of your life or another. I know we have. Waiting and waiting and waiting and praying and hoping. And still having to wait longer. God's people had been waiting. (laughs) In one sense, really, since the creation of the world, practically. For it was near the very, very beginning. After Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, and God was pronouncing a curse upon them, and then upon the serpent, that we get the first glimmer of hope. All those thousands of years before, the Lord said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity 
he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, that is her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, this offspring of the woman would do for them what they failed to do, take dominion over the earth under the, for the glory of God and crush the head of the serpent to guard the presence of God from anything unclean. Instead, they willingly became part of that. But in the mercies of God, he began to prophesy that a descendant would come who would deliver them. And that was uh, something I'm sure that they passed on to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And they waited and they hoped in the Lord, but many, many years went by. The Lord continued to give encouragement. Around 2000 B.C., God continued to make the promise of an offspring to Abraham. When He said to Abraham, the father of Israel, in Genesis chapter 22, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the stand of the sea on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now there's the promise of global blessing, just like in Genesis, specifically through the line of Abraham and this offspring who would come. Another thousand years goes by and people are waiting and they're hoping and they're trusting in the promises of God. And God promises that his offspring will now come through the line of David, the king of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is an everlasting kingdom. David's kingdom was great. Solomon's kingdom was uh, quite a majestic thing, but this descendant would have a kingdom that is forever. And God said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The Lord kept their hopes alive, promising that if they would wait upon Him, the Messiah would come, right? And, and year after year, generation after generation went by repeating those promises to each other, encouraging each other to believe those promises and to hold on to them. Their hope was fueled by the prophets who came in the centuries afterwards and seven, six, five hundred years before our Lord. Prophet Isaiah prophesied the virgin birth of the Messiah. Isaiah 7.14, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name what? Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. In chapter 9 of His prophecy, Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom, of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. 
and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So it's not only a global kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom coming now through the line of David prophesied to be born of a virgin, to be God with us, the mighty God. And finally, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 prophesies even the place of his birth. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Here is the everlasting one, the one with no beginning, who also has no end, born yet in time in the town of Bethlehem. But these are, these are the promises that God made. But folks, just remember this. And here, here's what really struck me. These people waited for the fulfillment of these promises for generation after generation after generation after generation, telling each other that they believed that this would happen. And no doubt there were many who heard them speak thus, who began to think them a crazy people, that the Lord would send, their God would send them a ruler who would whose kingdom would be everlasting, would be global. This is a poor, trampled, underfoot people. (laughs) What sort of fools were they to believe these promises that had passed on now for hundreds and thousands of years without fulfillment? But when he came, there were yet some who waited, right? There was Simeon, and there was Anna, And apparently there were many who waited for God's Messiah with faith. They had waited and waited and waited. And of course, in one way, our day is unlike their day in many respects because Christ has come. Amen? And because He has come, nothing is the same. There is greater light. The mystery of ages past is revealed in the person of Christ. There is a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit unlike anything ever before. There is a more pure church. There is a more extensive gospel effect among the nations. But still, who of us doesn't long for His glorious appearing, right? In one way, we are in the same place, waiting for His rule and reign, which has begun already to be made manifest, to be made visible, waiting for His public vindication at His glorious appearing. Whose heart in here does not say, oh Lord, come quickly. Who does not long for a world rid completely of all that opposes His rule and reign? Who does not long for a heart that is utterly transformed and completely eradicated from sin? We all are in some ways in the same uh, position, waiting, waiting for the appearing of the Messiah. 
God's true people have been waiting faithfully for for some 2,000 years now, right? And yet, here are two examples of those who were the end of a long line that had been waiting for thousands more. And I just want to remind myself and all of us that just as surely as God fulfilled His promises in that first advent, even so He will come again. Amen? In the same way you saw Him go, the angel said, He will come again. Yet in the last days there will be scoffers, plenty who say, where is the promise of His coming? You all are a bunch of fools to believe such ridiculous promises. Just as sure as the fulfillment of the first, so will be the fulfillment of the second. So brothers, persevere, wait, look to the Lord. Your faith will one day be rewarded. And even as we remember today, we we remember our brothers and sisters from long ago who were waiting with longing for the Messiah, so our own hearts may say today, come Lord, come quickly. And may we be people like Simeon and like Anna who waited, waited patiently for the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today and the strengthening of our faith, the lifting up of Christ. And I pray now that you would draw every heart to him. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.